0: By the way, um, Adam sitting down, uh, his microphone was about as high as I need to be standing up. Um, Fun little piece of information there. So as you turn, uh, many of you all recognize that we have been in a series, we just started last first Sunday, on evangelism. Uh, But we're not just talking about evangelism, just how to evangelize. We're going to get to that some. What we've been doing is having a look at the gospel from a variety of angles so we have a good comprehensive understanding of how the gospel works, how evangelism works, how salvation works. And so um, last week we talked about how we are not last week but last month uh, we talked about how we are in our own state naturally sinful and separated from God and how apart from God doing a work we call regeneration no one will ever believe. And so the, the choice to believe is something that God does. He gives us the gift of faith. as so we talked about how he changes our hearts. Uh, Ezekiel talks about he takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Um, we saw this language of the new birth, what we call regeneration. This week, we're gonna talk about what we call unconditional adoption, but a little quick preview. Many of you all know when we talk about the gospel, we tend to talk about it in context. Um, and we have four key points that we point out as kind of the concept for the gospel that we see played out through all of scripture. Uh, Sometimes they will call this the grand narrative. Uh, Historically, this has gotten a few different uh, terms on it, but this has been a part of Christian history to understand how the Bible fits together. And we see the four points are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation is that God created everything, and he created man in his image for his glory. Fall is the point that humans, specifically are parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in disobedience to God, and in doing so, separated themselves from God, incurred judgment, and brought death into the world. And we saw, we we can go into great detail in this, but we see that God has shown that there had to be a sacrifice for sin. The sacrificial system showed that there had to be a blood sacrifice for sin. And all of the Old Testament points forward to Christ who comes and redeems us. So that's the third point, is redemption. And when we say this, we're actually talking about the gospel. Redemption is this news that Jesus came, paid our sin debt, and rose from the dead to give us new life. And we talk about the gospel, we're talking about redemption. We're talking about what Christ did to save us. And then the fourth point is new creation or restoration, that God is putting things right, what was once broken. Everybody with me? We, we do this pretty much every Sunday, so you're familiar with it. So when we when we ask the question, what is the gospel? Gospel simply means good news, and it is the news that Jesus died to pay our sin debt. We see this in 1 Peter 2.24, among other places. And two, that he rose from the dead as our future hope. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, as well as many other places. Uh, we bring this up because there has been a movement to call a lot of things the gospel that are not. Um, the, the gospel is not that God loves you. Yes, that is good news. It is not the good news. The good news is that God died, Jesus died to pay your sin debt and rose from the dead to give you new life. Uh, Some people say, well, the gospel is about how we're making the world better through our obedience. I'm like, no, that's not the gospel. It can be an effect of the gospel that as God changes our hearts, we do good things and the world does get a little bit better. The, the gospel is not good works. The gospel is Jesus paid your sin debt and he rose from the dead. That is the gospel. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a good explanation of the gospel. Um, we're not going to read through it, but if you, if every now and then people are like, well, how do you know what the gospel is? And I'm like, well, there's a lot of places, but 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays it out really clear. Here's what's also important. And this is why we're, we're talking about this in the context of evangelism. In Matthew 28, Jesus commanded That we go and make disciples of all nations. It's not an option. It's not a, hey, it would be nice if you do this. We were commanded. In fact, he begins by saying, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He starts off by saying, I'm in charge of everything. Now go and make disciples. Um, Jesus has commanded disciple making. And the key aspect of disciple making is the proclamation of the gospel. And once a person believes, we disciple them on. But you cannot do discipleship without the proclamation of the gospel. It is essential. And so that means that if I am going to obey God, and Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If I am going to show my love for Christ, actually, a better way to say this, if I love Christ, I better be preaching the gospel. I can't be a faithful Christian and not ever share the gospel. It doesn't mean that I have to stand on a street corner every day and yell, but it means... I better be making disciples if I am a follower of Christ. And so sometimes that makes us really nervous. I'm going to go into how we do that over time in a way that isn't so scary. (laughs) Um, Because people get really nervous. We talk about, oh, no, evangelism, I'm uncomfortable. Well, maybe you need to be a little bit more comfortable with it. We're going to talk about that. Um, So... Today, we're going to talk about this issue of unmerited adoption, uh, and one of the reasons I'm bringing it up is because there is a misconception in uh, what I like to call Evangelifish, Um it is those who claim to be evangelicals but don't seem to know what that means. Um, there is a common misconception, somehow, that God, when he saved you, saved you because of something special in you. Um, maybe you've heard that, like, I know I pick on Todd White every now and then because he's not a good theologian. I hope that he is repenting of some of his bad teaching. But he has said, well, when I look at the cross and Jesus' sacrifice, I think about how, how wonderful I must be that God paid such a price. I must, be, I must be really valuable to God. That's tantamount to heresy. Because the reality is we are saved by grace and not merit. God saves us because of goodness in him, not because of goodness in us. He didn't look and say, like, you know what? That one's going to be a really good preacher. That one's going to be a really uh, great Christian. That one's going to win a lot of people to Jesus. And so I'm going to pick really good ones. No, God just said, I'm adopting that kid. He's mine. Um, You know, if a parent were going to choose who they were going to adopt based on who they thought was going to be good at football or who they thought was going to make a doctor, and, and, like, it wouldn't be great adoption, would it? Praise God, when he chooses us, it's because of his love, not because of anything in us. So when we talk about the five solos of the Reformation, we will often say we're saved by faith and not works. But what is often left out is the idea that we're saved by grace and not merit. There are a lot of Christians that will say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm totally saved by faith and not works. But then they're like, but but God saved me because, you know, I, he, I'm really valuable to him and, and he saw something in me. That's the classic one is people say, well, God saw something in you. No. It's entirely because of who he is. And so we're going to get into this idea of what we call unmerited adoption. So Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, I'm going to begin reading here. I'm going to pray first. Lord, would you anoint me as I speak today? Uh, God, may I only speak in accordance with your will. May I accurately exegete scripture. May we come to a greater understanding of who you are and what you have done. So receive glory in this time. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So beginning in verse 3, Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, and in this book of Ephesians, he is writing to believers. So understand, this is believers that are meant to be hearing this. And many would say that Ephesians was meant to be probably a handbook that the elders would have used in Ephesus to continue church planting, that this was like a one-stop shop, you know, since they didn't have the whole Bible then. Ephesians gives you a good overview of things. And so in this overview book that Paul knew probably might be the only piece of Christian literature many of them would have, these are the things that he puts in it, and he opens with this talk about adoption. So verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Okay, a lot of stuff going on there, Um, but we're going to talk here about the fact that it is the father who is adopting. Uh, So you'll notice in verse three, one of the first things that comes up is that God is the one being blessed for adopting. He is referred to as the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is important, that God's God's role as Father is given specific emphasis here, specifically that he is Father of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say that it is in Christ that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And you will see, you might note on, on the verses, that I've highlighted every time there is a mention of in Christ, whether it is specifically just in Christ or through Christ or the beloved or in him. And I want you to note how often this phrase in Christ or some variation of it comes up as the central focus of how God has adopted us. So verse four goes on where God talks about, or Paul, writing of God, uh, talks about how God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, I'm just going to fully recognize that there is a theological can of worms to be opened in this topic of predestination. Um, Without going into great detail, I will say in in our um, Underground Seminary Doctrine of God course, we go into this in much more detail. I just want to point out what this says. It says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That means that before you and I existed, before we breathed the breath, before the world itself was spoken into existence, God chose you to be his child. How that works with human will and responsibility, big discussion. But put aside everything else. God knew ahead of time who you were going to be, what you were going to be, before you had done good or bad because of who he is, not because of who you are. He said, that one's going to be mine. Like that, that kid's going to be mine. Um, I, I've heard of people, um, you know, traveling in a third world country and they come across orphan children who are in terrible poverty and they're just like, that one, that, that one's mine. That's, I'm going to adopt that one. This is how God's adoption works. He doesn't look and say like, ah, you know what, Bob's going to be really good at this or Adam's going to be really good at this or Carol's going to be great at this or, wow, well, you know, Bucky's going to be such a nice guy. God, there's nothing like that. God just says, that one's mine. Nothing to do with anything we had done. Here's what's also interesting, and what gets left out in a lot of discussions related to predestination. He talks about us being predestined so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Think about the fact that he predestined that you would be holy and blameless. It's not just predestined to be saved, although that's obviously built into this. It's predestined that you would be holy and blameless. Now, we could say this has to do with how Jesus paid our sin debt, and so we're justified before him. That was one of the catechism questions today. It could very be well a a reference to that. Praise the Lord. We also know, though, in Romans 8, that it says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. The idea of both justification and sanctification here, that that I will stand before the Lord holy and blameless, not just because my sin debt has been paid for, but because he's actually made me more like Christ. He's predestined that, brothers and sisters. That means that you will come to a time where you will be fully holy and blameless before the Lord. To be clear, that will happen after you have passed on into eternity. But we are in a process where God is working in and through you. There's a lot of things built into this adoption, hopefully you're already seeing. So verse 5, it mentions that it is in love that he predestined us for adoption as sons. A little side note, too, when we talk about predestination, people get really uncomfortable and they're like, well, man, why didn't God predestine everybody? Doesn't this seem a little picky and choosy? And it's really easy to start looking at God kind of negatively because we really tend to highly esteem human choice. I just want to point out that it says it is in love that he predestined us. It is because of God's love he looked at you and said, that one's mine. I love that one. He's going to be mine or she's going to be mine. This whole thing is because of God's love, and as it says, is it accord? It is according to the purpose of His will. He's the one who said, "This is what I want to do. This is my love. This is what I'm going to do to save that one." All because of His will. Anyway, uh, verse six. I also want to point out it mentions that this is for His glory, and then it says this: to the praise, uh, to praise Him for His grace with which he has blessed us with in Christ. Notice the language is that he's the one adopting, he's the one redeeming, he's the one predestining our holiness so that he is the one who receives all the praise for it. Everybody with me? Is this making sense? All right. So let's read on in verses 7 through 10. It says, In him, notice this, in him, coming up again. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this focus here in verse 7 is that it is in Christ that we have this redemption, and it is absolutely by his blood, that this redemption provides this forgiveness for our sins and that it is absolutely according to God's grace. Have you ever thought about things being done according to God's grace? It's not just that he does it. It's that it is in unity. It is in function with his grace. And so I want to dig into this in verse 8 and 9 a little bit more as to what this is a reference to. Notice it says that grace, this grace of God that brings us this redemption is lavished upon us. Um, when we think of lavish, I think of uh, I think of like fancy things, right? You think of lavish, you think of uh, liberalness in it. Like I'm lavishing something. I'm. If we're not careful, it even sounds wasteful, right? Lavishness gives this idea of abundance that I'm like I'm pouring it out, right? Uh, it's used. It seems like lavish is a word that's used in soap commercials to like make you sound fancy and whatever, like. The idea of lavish means like this abundance and God is pouring out in abundance on you. He is lavishing his grace upon his children. Everybody with me on that? So it's interesting, when we think of lavish, we don't think of prudence. And yet the very next verse, it says that this lavishness, this grace that is lavished is in all wisdom and insight. Little key side note, this means it is not wasteful and reckless. Uh, Many of you all have heard me speak negatively of the song, Reckless Love. It's because, man, God never does things outside of his nature. God is never reckless. And we see right here this love that that causes him to predestine, this grace that he has for us that is lavished out on us is still done in perfect wisdom and insight. It's a little bit wild to me to think that in lavishing, he's actually doing the wisest thing possible. That in lavishing his grace upon us, he's actually doing in accordance with his insight, his knowledge of all things for all time. And he says, this is the absolute best thing that is to be done. It means that every piece of this it is in accordance with God's plan to bring him the most glory. So in fact, so I'm thinking like, okay, well, if it's lavished, but it's wise and insightful, how does that work? Notice the very next phrase talks about how it is in his grace that he shows us the mystery of his will. Anytime we see the word mystery in scripture, it's not like Scooby-Doo Minute Mystery, where it's like, oh, something is unknown. Mystery in scripture always reveals or talks about something that was once unknown, that it is now known. Mystery is always referred to in reference to a fulfillment and a revealing. It's that we didn't know this before and now we do. It's a mystery that is revealed. It says that his grace is showing us the mystery of God's will. So what is that? So here we have this thing where it's it's grace that is lavished upon us. It is in wisdom and prudence and that somehow it is revealing his will. And then he goes on to say that it is in accordance with his purpose And all of a sudden, all of this is in Christ. So once again, referencing in Christ. So verse 10 gives us a little bit more specific understanding of like this mystery that is revealed. Verse 10 talks about how it is God's plan for the fullness of time. Anybody know what fullness of time means? Like, what is fullness of time? That's a good question, or a good comment. Not exactly, but in a sense. Fullness of time. When when God wanted things to happen. So we use this phrase, like, when the time is ripe or when the time is right, right? The idea of, like, at just the perfect time, and the fullness of time, the fulfillment of time. Like, when it was supposed to happen, it happened. That God's plan was to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to himself in Christ. So hopefully we're following this, because I recognize Paul's actually covering a lot of ground here, and we're trying to cover that ground with him in a relatively limited amount of time. But here, God put in place this plan, this mystery of his will, to adopt you. Like, not just random people, not just a whatever, like, you. The ones he predestined before the foundation of the earth. He had this plan, and he had a plan for when it was going to happen, And it is played out in Christ in which God is restoring all things to himself. So just a quick understanding of this fullness of time, I'm going to hop over to Galatians 4 because Paul in these uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, he seems to be addressing some of the same themes. He is writing roughly at the same time. He's in jail. He had some time to write. Um, Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says this of this fullness of time thing. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Are you seeing all this fullness of time adoption, like reiterated here? It says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We're going to get into this in greater detail in just a moment. But notice this language is that the fullness of time, very specifically, is Christ's atoning work. And it is so that you and I can come to know him and be his sons and his daughters. Colossians 1, 19 through 22 says a similar thing. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice the same thing of like restoring all things in Christ. This language is that he paid the sin debt so that things could be made whole again. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Does that sound really familiar with what we were just reading? That this fullness of time is about Christ's atoning death. That everything in all of history, in all of scripture, points to Christ for this purpose. This very specific purpose to make sure that you could be redeemed so he could adopt you as his child. Sometimes when I'm preaching something like this, I think about how profound and earth-shattering it is. And I think, like, I, I wish I had bigger words. I wish I had more dramatic ways to communicate just how big this is. But anything I did would not be enough. That God, in his mercy, in his sovereignty, in his grace and his love, planned this before he even spoke light into existence and he knew you ahead of time, and he knew you were gonna rebel against him. He knew that you were going to hate him, and yet, built into his plan to redeem you. Uh, The illustration I often hear is, it is as if uh, a child runs off from home, rebels from his father, gets into a terrible situation, is caught into slavery, and is on the auction block, and that father, who this was already his son, this should have already been his, because he created us, comes there and buys back the sun. And so there's a sense in which, like, it's, we're gods because he made us, but now he's bought us with Christ's blood. Think about the fact that for all eternity, or before the foundation of the earth, he planned this. And he knew what it was going to cost him, and he did it anyway. So when we talk about this grand narrative of scripture of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, uh, when we talk about that whole grand narrative, this central point, this fullness of time, is that redemption that we talk about. So hopefully you're in the back of your mind. Hopefully two things are going on in your mind right now. One, you're thinking like, God, look what you have done. And hopefully you're, you're, you're overjoyed that God adopted you and all that he's built into this. But second, hopefully you're thinking about the fact that the, the people that you are to lead to the Lord are people that he has already planned to adopt For the foundation of the earth. And that he is going to accomplish his purpose. And we'll see in a minute that should give us great confidence as we evangelize. But hopefully also it helps us understand just how central Christ is in all of this. So, last section here. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Because this is what happens with kids, right? You get adopted, you're part of the family. You're one of the kids. You get an inheritance. Right? A kid gets an inheritance, and when you're adopted, you are just as much a child as anybody else is that was born into the family. So it's in him we have obtained. Now notice, it is in Christ that we have obtained this inheritance. In Christ, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, important thing, here: this God who works all things according to the counsel of his will, who makes sure that whatever he wants to happen happens, that's the God who predestined you. You know what that means? That means he's going to make sure that you endure to the end. Reading on. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So a couple of key things in here. First of all, as we mentioned, the inheritance is in Christ. Again, the emphasis on Christ. It is because we're predestined, and this God who makes all things happen according to His will is the one who has predestined it. But also, it points out that this salvation is bringing Him praise. I also like to point out this whole language of this seal of the Holy Spirit. Um, Yes, ever you, most of us, if you've been to like Colonial Williamsburg, or if you've watched old movies about kings. The the king has like, you know, they'll put some wax on a letter and then they'll have like a signet ring or some other type of a seal that he puts on it that marks it. And that mark there is to show that this is from the king. This belongs to the king, right? Uh, Arguably the king could give his signet ring uh, or his seal to someone else to show like, hey, I'm, I'm with the king. I'm one of his, right? The language of scripture here is that when we believe, God gives us the promised Holy Spirit as a seal. Other places, it actually uses the language of seal. The idea here is this is how you know that you are God's child, arguably how others know as well. But this language here is because the inheritance hasn't come yet, right? We're talking about eternal blessings, and yes, there are blessings in the short term, but as far as my eternal state. I get to know now that I am God's child because of the sealed Holy Spirit that we get at the moment of belief. Um, So then the question is okay, well, how do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? If He's the one that seals me, this is how I know. Good question. Um, Remember what we talked about last month? That you cannot even believe unless God does a work of regeneration in you. So the first point is that if you love God, it means you have the Holy Spirit. And not just, yeah, general, like, yeah, God's great and all, but the idea of the God of Scripture, this God of Scripture described in Scripture, you love him. Because Romans 1 talks about, apart from Christ, we hate God. We hate the God of Scripture, at least, right? And so the language is, if you love God at all, it's because the Holy Spirit worked in you to make it possible for you to do so. That is a sign of the Holy Spirit. Uh, R.C. Sproul used this illustration in Assurance of Salvation. He's like, do you love God perfectly? When everybody would say, well, no. And he's like, okay. He's like, do you love God even a little bit? It's like, if you love God even a little bit, it's because his Holy Spirit is in you. And hopefully that love is growing as the Holy Spirit is working in you. But he's like, that's that's a sign of the Holy Spirit. That's a sign of the seal of the Holy Spirit that you are God's child. Beyond that though, what else does anybody know what else the Holy Spirit does? So he's he's regenerated us. Anybody else? He teaches So if I'm reading scripture and things are coming to understanding, a side note, 1 Corinthians talks about how the non-believer cannot discern spiritual things. And I have many times been looking at things in scripture that were pretty plain, that the non-believer looked like they were just insane. I've also seen some of those who came to Christ and all of those things became clear to them. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit teaches... So if you are reading scripture, and not that you're never confused, but like if you are getting insight as you read the word of God, that is yet another sign that the Holy Spirit is in you. You are sealed, brothers and sisters. Anybody think of any others? Hey, convicts. That was the very next thing on my list, by the way. The Holy Spirit convicts. This, by the way, I've never thought until recently how joyful it is to be convicted, uh, Paul Washer used this illustration of like going out when he was a kid and he had new clothes on and he was told to keep them clean and he's out with his buddies and they're all playing in the mud and he just pretty much ruins his clothes. And he comes home and his buddies are nearby and his mother just loses her mind. Like, what, what are you doing? And he says, well, you know, my, you know, you're not mad at my friends. We were all doing the same thing. And she says, Joe and David are not my son. She cares about her son. And his cleansing, his sanctification, because he's her kid, right? And not that we don't like pay attention to make sure that our kids don't kill each other, but man, I care a whole lot more about my child and discipling my child than I care about any other kids. Like I want all your kids to do well, and you know what? Like (laughs) I want you to think though about the fact that when God brings conviction in your life, it is because He's put His Holy Spirit in you to do that. So, brothers and sisters, repent quickly, receive God's grace, and be joyful that you are God's kid who's getting you clean. This is what he's promised. Anyway, um, other things the Holy Spirit does, we know that he... He bears fruit in us. And so love and joy and peace, Galatians 5, where it talks about all the fruits of the Spirit. If you are growing in those, praise the Lord, it is a good sign of the Holy Spirit in you. I have used, by the way, Galatians 5 talks about works of the flesh and fruits of the Spirit. I have sat down with people that I wasn't sure was saved, and I read through, here's the works of the flesh. And by the way, you're doing them because it's the concept. <laughs> and then here's the fruits of the Spirit. Do you have these? Are you growing in these? And there have been times where, it, nope. <laughs> I'm thinking one in particular where a guy just didn't seem to have. He had the works of the flesh and not fruits of the Spirit. And so the next step is like, you need to repent and believe the gospel. Um, but man, if you see, well, I'm growing in joy. I'm not perfect. I'm growing in peace. I'm not perfect. I'm growing in self-control. Not perfect. That is a sign that the Holy Spirit is in you. If you are never being convicted of sin, that should concern you. If you are being convicted and you are growing, praise the Lord. I don't worry about the ones who are not who are struggling with sin. I worry about those who are not struggling with sin. If you are continually seeking to slay sin as the Holy Spirit works in you, that's the seal of the Holy Spirit. So as we finish up, hopefully, are you seeing this? Oh yeah. I just have one more. Yeah. Uh, prayer. Yeah. He's Please. assisting us in I mean, prayer. Yeah. I'm just thinking, are you talking to God every day? Yeah. Good. That's a good one, and that again is because of the Holy Spirit in us. Um, right on. So bringing all this up, I'm hoping that it gives us an understanding of like this adoption that we have in Christ. It's a pretty profound thing. It's something that He has done. It's something that hopefully we're looking at our lives and we're like, Wow, I see how God had all this worked out. As we look ahead to evangelism, my hope is that it gives you some confidence. And so a couple of things I'm going to just kind of point out, um, some implications of this unmerited adoption as we finish out. First of all, it does give us confidence. Since God has predestined our adoption, he always brings about what he plans. We can be confident that we are saved. Praise the Lord. Um, Again, if you have that seal of the Holy Spirit. Second, it should lead to humility. Since our adoption is by his grace and work and not our merit or effort, we should be humble. You shouldn't go thinking about like, well, God must have seen something great in me and that's why he saved me or or look at all the good things I've done. I should be like, man, this is totally God's work. Praise God for it. I don't deserve it. Third, we should be comforted. Since we have the Holy Spirit, we have proof of our adoption in Christ. Man, that should comfort me. Even as we mentioned, even my conviction of even being convicted of sin should comfort me that praise God, I am God's child. Right? Uh, this last thing I would say, is maybe there's more, but it gives us some boldness. Since he is the one who adopts by his will, and he's going to get done, everything he's going to get done, my evangelism doesn't have to be this coaxing and coercing. I deliver the gospel with clarity. I reason from scripture and from logic, but I don't have to, I'm not, I'm not the one responsible for winning this person over. My job is to be obedient in the proclamation of the gospel. God in his adopting is going to make sure that everyone that he has planned is going to come to him. Now I know that the Arminians are going to get really nervous about that, I understand. Let's just be confident though and say like, this is what it says about God. Like, I, I'm just acknowledging like this is, this is what it says. It says he predestined. It says he adopted. It says he chose us before the foundation of the earth. How that works in with human free will, there's a big debate. We could talk about that. Here's just This is what it says. I have to go along with what it says and what it says gives me some comfort. So when I sit down and I share the gospel with someone that they don't believe, I don't have to go kicking myself saying, ah, oh, what if I'd said this instead? What if I'd done this instead? I get to sit down and say, I delivered the gospel with clarity. And God's sheep know his voice. And now that gospel is in them. And his Holy Spirit can do that work. And I can sit down, or as Luther said, like, we can drink beer because the gospel is doing its work. That's a little bit of a Strange thing to say, but the idea is that the gospel is going to do its work by the Holy Spirit. It is not up to me to force it, and so we praise God that our evangelism can be done in confidence. So, um, as we finish out, um, I want to pray for our evangelism. I'm going to give it then to uh, uh, to Brian, who's going to proclaim the gospel for us, and then we're going to take communion. Um, But I hope, now I recognize we're leading up to some more conversation about evangelism, and so um, I recognize we didn't get to like, here's how you evangelize. What we're giving is a little bit more understanding. Last month, we got into the understanding of like, hey, nobody's going to believe unless God does a work in them. But I better proclaim the gospel, because that is the prerequisite. uh, They have to hear if they're going to believe. This week, we're talking about like, man, God's adopted his kids. He's going to make sure this happens. Um, Hopefully, that gives us some confidence. We're going to go into more of these things in the coming weeks. But... If you would, join with me in prayer, and then we're going to hear the gospel proclaimed. Uh, Lord, thank you that you have been faithful and always will be faithful. Um, God, as we remember the gospel and we remember how you have adopted us, God, just receive glory, and may we be humble in that. And then, Lord, may we be bold in the proclamation of the gospel, knowing that there are still those out there uh, who you mean to redeem. So use this us for your glory, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.